But I want to start by discussing a little bit about my own journey, uh, how I came to uh, leave my career, profession, business and do this full time since 20 years now and uh, what are some of the things that I've done and then what are my thoughts on where we need to, to collectively go together in the future. So I uh, came from a family where uh, my father's side were very sort of, uh, they were very different mother's and father's side. My mother's side were very traditional, uh, traditional into the dharma, uh, you know, uh, and my father and, 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 and very intellectual guy. My grandfather was a mathematics teacher and my mother's a doctor and so on. And my father's side were more professional business type. They were, they were, they were in industry and business. So it's an interesting combination. And I was raised in Delhi. My home influence very dharmic, especially from my mother's side. Ramakrishna Mission was mentioned, it was very important. Swami Ranganathan, who was later the head of the whole Ramakrishna Mission, used to be the Delhi head and he used to visit our house a lot. We had many interesting conversations and debates when I was a teenager. And then Swami Chinmayanand uh, from Chinmay Mission, we used to attend his lectures and so on. But beyond that also, went to a lot of Tirth Yatras, went to Haridwar a couple of times a year. Uh, and I was an avid reader. So I was reading Sri Aurobindo, I was reading philosophy of various kinds. And this is my life. And in terms of academics, my interest was uh, mathematics, physics, I was a science kind of person. And the reason I took on uh, uh, physics and wanted to come to the United States and uh, pursue uh, you know, a career in physics as a physicist is actually because of my interest in Indian philosophy. I really wanted to understand the ultimate reality. And I wanted to understand it both from a scientific point of view and from a, our own dharmic point of view. So I wanted to sort of understand Vedanta and Kashmir Shaivism and Tantra and Yoga and the inner body and the outer world. I want to understand these and also ground it in a scientific way. So I came here and I switched my career to uh, computer science and followed a very practical track. Just, you know, chasing the money, rat race, running around. I did all that. So I had a fast-moving career in uh, corporate life. Uh, then I, uh, many, even there I was in the software industry, then I got into telecom industry, then I ran a software house, then I became a strategist. Then I left and became a consultant, became a management consultant for big companies, Fortune 50, 100 type companies here and overseas, in telecom, in media type of work. Uh, when the internet was just a beginning at the time, but there were many other related things. And then I quit and uh, became my own entrepreneur and started some ventures in these same areas. And at one time I had 20 companies in different places, uh, mostly emerging markets. And before they were, before it was fashionable, in, in, uh, in, now it's very fashionable. And then I had, uh, I never left my uh, inner quest. I never left my meditation, never really uh, dropped those things. But the life I was living outward, it was very running around, grabbing success, uh, making all the money I could and trying to beat my competitors and very uh, uh, aggressive competitive uh, comp in terms of market competition. Uh, and you know, people didn't know that I still have that, I, that I have that inner thing in me. Most people would look at me and, 25 years ago, if you ask somebody, they would say, Rajiv, he's just a cutthroat, tough, you know, that's what he is. 
type A, whatever you call it, those kind of people running around seven days a week, you know. And my the people who worked for me also felt that that's what he is. But then, you know, there is an inner, this is why I tell young people that plant some seeds. And even if you have to go and do practical things to establish yourself first, because I always tell people you must be secure. You must, young people should make themselves secure. Uh, but if you are, if you, if certain seeds are planted in you and they are going to one day mushroom, they are one day going to come out and you, you will then switch back, you know. So I was very lucky it happened that about 94, at, in, the, in, the, in one sense, the maximum success. If you look at my uh, tax return that I, I did the best, doing my best. But if you look at my inner being, I was very troubled, anguished, a lot of, uh, complexities. Uh, also, you know, in the rat race, business rat race, you, you come across a lot of people that you don't think well of and you have to do business with them. And so you also begin to wonder, is this life? You know, I mean, now I'm stuck in having to do all these kind of, you know, uh, because people are only materialistic. Yeah, people are materialistic and that's all that matters to them. For me, it was more like I already making more than I needed. And it was more like a game because I'm successful, so I keep playing the game. So it's more interesting to keep winning, you know. Not because I needed that. Not, not also because I, I wasn't attached to that. But I just wanted, it was momentum of success. Success becomes a momentum. Then you just keep playing it for the game. But I felt uncomfortable with the, the ethics of the business world. I felt uncomfortable with too much accumulation of wealth with few people and a lot of suffering and people very selfish. Uh, so I, there was a series of the events and, the, uh, and I, I connected with a new guru at that time. Uh, a guru I had uh, some relatives had introduced me to and uh, some years ago when I had met this guru I attended a talk and I was said okay this is already I already know that all these things we learned in Chinmay mission and Ramakrishna mission I already know the nature of the self, the nature, I, could, I can quote all these things so I have nothing to learn. This is what I was kind of a very snobbish attitude uh, and uh, so the people uh, with the guru who approached me, who had brought me to the guru went and told back this thing about my reaction and the guru said he is not yet ready but one day he'll be ready so let him be. So this is what they told me, they said okay you're not ready, you're still in, deeply involved in all the things you're running around but one day you'll be ready. And then, you know, then some years later in 94, suddenly I was ready. I, I had uh, one big ex uh, experience after another, one big moment of aha and feeling like, you know, uh, a kind of a deep realization of who I am. And then all of these things I'm running around, I'm just running around. Uh, why? I don't even need to do this. What is the point of all this in the end? So it was almost a uh, uh, quick uh, re, uh, sort of feeling to just let go of what I was doing, just drop it. And I remember I came back from a flight somewhere and I brought my uh, main people together in New Jersey. The subsidiaries I had were in different countries. So I brought these people together and we used to always have a, you know, lunch together. So, so I said, look, I've decided I'm going to leave all this. So they just thought that it must be joking. So I called a lawyer and I said, I'm exiting. We prepared whatever each group, uh, each uh, venture in a particular country, I give it to the local management. I, I get out. Uh, 
So they didn't think this is real. They really didn't think it's real. And I, uh, my family got worried that what is this guy? Some of my f personal friends said, you know, maybe you're having a midlife crisis. It happens to men happen this way at this age. You know? One of them said, I know a very good psychiatrist. He's <laughs> yeah, a lot of people. Lot of uh, relatives calling me, are you irresponsible? What are you doing? You know, like this. And uh, business associates said, you know, no, no, he's, he's probably got a secret venture going. <laughs> and he'll create this idea that he's exiting and uh, take the market by surprise. He'll do something secret somewhere big. You know, he, he's not going to leave. So, but I left. You know? And uh, in my guru's advice, that when you're leaving, uh, you can't be, you have to be responsible towards your dharma, towards family. So I created a trust for my family to basically let them, which, in which I'm not a beneficiary, I cannot get anything. This is for them. So whatever happens to me, this is, they'll be okay, they'll be taken care of. Not live the great life, but maintain a status quo. That what we created, we live in the same house, we have the status quo, you guys can continue, even if tomorrow I'm dead or gone, doesn't matter as far as your material uh, status quo is concerned. And I created uh, uh, an endowment for the Infinity Foundation and I created a, a retirement trust for me. So these are the separate, nothing in the same box, separate, separate. And my retirement trust look after me. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, while at first it grew a lot because I totally handed over to some investment guys, but then market crash, this, that, that also started coming down, but I'm still able to be fine. And after I'm dead, my endowment, my uh, retirement trust goes to my foundation, not to my kids or anything. So, so it's very clearly uh, under my guru's guidance, it's very clearly what my priorities are and whatever I'm able to achieve, where it goes. So my, I've put that down. With that, I became a retiree at the age of 44. Became full-time, irreversible, burnt my bridges, got out of my things. And I sold my company for one one dollar. Because I, my guru also told me that, look, you made enough for yourself, so you're happy. And your idea is not you want to accumulate more. So this business of exit, how much exit value you get is probably not a good, you know, you, you exit. You, and who are the people who had to make this? My, the guys who were around me. I was the smarter, cleverer, craftier fellow who made all the equity for myself. But actually these guys had made the business. You know, I, had, I had smart people around me who helped me a lot. So I actually sold each venture for one, one dollar to those who were the inner group who had, sometimes it was one person, sometimes a small group, they would buy me out. So this made me a free person. And this made my friends and family very worried. Very worried. What the heck is this guy doing? So I didn't know initially, you know, all the things that I'm now doing. I, I had no, couldn't see 20 years ahead. So I first, uh, uh, the foundation went through three or four phases of defining its charter. So initial tra charter was wisdom and compassion. Compassion is what you do from the heart, wisdom, your scholarship and all that. So for the compassion, I signed up and became a hospice worker. I went through the medical training to be a hospice worker, which means people who are dying have no one else 
hospice worker is assigned, you go to their house, you are their friend, you give them counseling, you spiritual advice. So I had different clients, they were all Westerners assigned to me. I became a hospice worker. I also uh, got uh, certified for AIDS counseling. AIDS was a very big thing in those days and there, there was a big taboo. And so I was just, uh, you know, I was led spontaneously. Uh, my guru said, don't let the ego uh, plan out what you want to do. Uh, things will come knocking at the door. Those are the right things to go. So I literally was once in a uh, record shop buying some record for somebody and there was a AIDS walkathon poster. So it, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to go tomorrow and do this walkathon. And the walkathon was very impressed with the, the speeches they made that they need more volunteers. So I signed up, became a volunteer. And there was a three-month course to uh, being certified as a social worker. I became certified as a social worker. And then I started helping those people. So I, I got into several causes in my area, personally, with my own time. And then the funding from the foundation, I would give anonymously. Because I didn't want that they think I'm somebody special. So when I would go as a volunteer, I, they would know me as just many other volunteer. And among the funding sources, there is this foundation that giving them some funding. I really didn't want to be connected with that also. Because I felt that then the ego gets involved. So you, you, this is all my guru's foundation built uh, for me. you know. And then the second part of the uh, work was uh, uh, wisdom. Now under wisdom, I started giving grants on Vedanta, Indian philosophy, here and there, that is when I realized how much bias there is. Wisdom is what became my entire future. Because I felt that the compassion part is personal, I still do that. But in terms of how little money I can give for these little projects, it makes a very little difference. And these things require a huge amount of money to make a difference in terms of charity, your charitable activities. We give funding for children's causes and water in Indian villages and AIDS causes in India also, health, women's projects, children's projects, all of that. But in the end, I felt that my calling, my swadharma, my resonance was with the intellectual dimension, the wisdom part. So in the wisdom part, we started intervening in the 90s in the American school system where the curriculum was not very good for our culture. So in the school where my children go, I took the history teacher, religion teacher, culture studies teacher, I took them to Rishikesh, Nepal. We went to all kinds of sites and we saw, I said, why don't we bring school kids here to learn our traditions rather than sitting in the US having all these strange ideas. So the principal of the school was very impressed by the report she got. I took these uh, teachers to Gangotri and we had very fascinating experiences. So as a result of that, we started a campaign. We started a project which is still alive in Princeton where during spring break, students, 20, 25, with some parents and teachers, they make a trip to India to learn Indian religions firsthand. And these kids come back very transformed. And these kids are not the stereotype types. They are very deeply influenced and impressed by Hinduism and other religions. So the, uh, the uh, projects of this sort mushroomed in universities, uh, in me uh, trying to understand media bias. So I started going into the uh, intellectual dimension as my calling because I, I could personally make a contribution and I have, uh, I felt being analytically trained, scientifically trained, I can analyze things in a rational way and make my argument very robust 
and not emotional and also being confident and, and being able to articulate uh, I can make an impact. So I felt that this is, this is where I should be focusing and this is my Swadharma. Through trial and error, trying many different things, I focused on this particular being my Swadharma. Now, the first uh, thing I did was I compiled a lot of problems and evidence on how Hinduism is being denigrated, defamed, distorted, and I called it Hindu phobia. I called I coined the term because I had come across the term Islamophobia. Muslims always, if you criticize, if you're not being fair, they'll say you're Islamophobic, you know. So I figured that we should talk about Hinduphobic also. A lot of Hinduphobics. And I started giving talks to Hindu groups. I must say, people in your shoes twenty years ago were not willing to listen. Representing these kind of organizations that you are representing were not willing to listen. The religious organizations would say, why does it matter to me? Within the safety of my temple, nobody's creating a problem. I'm only worried about what we are doing here. We have deity, we are doing bhakti. What happens, what they do, we don't care. That was the attitude. Uh, many of them would not even want a talk because they did not want bad news. They did not want to hear anything so-called negative. We, we only look at good things. That was the attitude. The political groups, uh, friends of BJP, HSS, VHP, these kind of groups were not interested because they, they, they had a very closed group of, uh, mentality. I was an outsider. I've never been part of any of these groups. And uh, they have in their own group, they, if none of them knew these things, then they were not interested in an outsider coming and talking to them. And their attitude was that we are telling our headquarters people in India how great a job we are doing and you're going to tell them that we haven't done a good job because there are problems. We've been telling them that we have these 800 temples, 900 temples and when Vajpayee comes we're going to tell him how great we are doing, put mala on him, go take him here, temple, there temple and you are telling that there is bias for what is this going on. So I told them that there are many domains in America like in India. So within the temple domain it is fine. But within outside the temple, you go to media, what is happening, you go to the think tanks, what is happening, what is the US government policy on various human rights issues, what is happening, you go to some academic places, what is happening, and that is what I'm looking at. So you people are only looking at a little cocoon, and you're afraid to get out of your comfort zone. And you just, uh, with like-minded people reinforcing how we pat your back, you pat my back, this kind of a thing going on, but it is a disservice as leaders because leaders are supposed to go out of their corporate uh, cocoon and see what the world is out. You have to see the Kurukshetra outside. So this is very unpopular. I became unpopular as sort of uh, who is he, who is he talking, what, is he, what does he think of us, who, you know, who, how, you know. So I was not in the good books of anybody. And of course the, uh, the academics here whose bias I was pointing out were obviously not very happy with me. So I didn't know where to belong, where, where I get traction. So I started, while on the one hand my foundation is funding programs to try and use positive ways of winning them over by actually giving them grants, I in my personal capacity would read all the stuff they're doing and write critiques about it and go to them and point it out. So many prominent people in the American Academy studying Hinduism came to me and said, we love Infinity Foundation, but we have problems with you. We want Infinity Foundation, but not Rajiv. What they were saying is, give us your money and shut up. <laughs> That's what it means. Infinity gives us the money, Rajiv gives us trouble. 
So we like the former, but we hate the latter. So we love Infinity Foundation. But you, you know, Rockefeller doesn't come here when he writes a check. We, we, are, we will give him a certificate and we will send him thank you letter. Uh, Ford doesn't come here. Uh, Templeton doesn't come here when they give their money. They try to make me, make me feel like I'm a big shot like those guys, you know. And so I don't need to go and do all this hard work. I should be sitting on a beach somewhere relaxing, just write them a check and they'll send me thank you notes. This is what they wanted. A hands-off, passive donor. So one of the things I find wrong with today's donors is that they are not involved intellectually, personally, hands-on, putting in the sweat equity, getting involved, and therefore they're making a fool of themselves. Because, you know, it, you could never be uh, successful like that. I remember a meeting I had with uh, uh, Rajat Gupta. This is before his problems. Very decent man, a very good man. I had a nice meeting with him. This was like in the more than a decade ago, or somewhere around in the two, after 2000. And he was gathering funds for Harvard, you know, India studies from Indian industrialists. And I went there to tell him that I think it's a bad idea. So we had a nice amicable conversation, just him, me, and somebody who was working with me who was kind of a relative of his, distant relative of his. So I explained to him that there are a lot of issues on their output about our culture. And just funding somebody, hoping that with funds they'll change, doesn't work. I've tried it. So he said, what are the examples of these issues? So I gave him several examples. He didn't know a single one of them. I told him I've, even, I've got a book ready, I haven't published it, still I haven't published it, but I have a book ready uh, doing a comparative of uh, China, uh, chi the way China is studied in Harvard and the way India is studied in Harvard. How I did a point by point comparison to show you that the China is studied in a whole different way and India is a human rights nightmare, they don't talk about China in that, in that same way uh, because the Chinese have uh, intervened and they have influence there and Indians are very confused and don't have influence there. So he was quite surprised and quite bothered and troubled. But he's, he was so confident that, you know, he, he, with his connections, he'll raise funds and they'll solve the problem. So then I used some magic words, being a consultant myself. I was talking to a big consultant. So I knew the magic words. I said, have you done due diligence on the industry of India studies? He was, he was eating his apple and just suddenly stopped. Because a consultant is supposed to do due diligence before investing and before telling his client to invest. So I said, India studies is an industry, like hotel industry, like tech media industry, like automobile industry. You, your McKinsey would never give advice to a client to go and invest in a venture in an industry without doing due diligence. Then I use another magic word. Have you done industry analysis of India studies? So he was very quiet. I said, can tell me Rajat, how many people in the United States are full-time India studies, studying India? History, or could be religion, could be anthropology, could be studying political science, could be studying human rights, could be studying, could be studying in a think tank, and in, there could be India specialist, could be in the American Academy, could be in the church. Do you have a database? Because if you want to be an industry analyst, you must have a database on who's who in that industry. And you must know what their output is, what are the camps, what are the positions, what are the issues. 
and you must know where the funding comes from and you must know what conclusions these people are reaching because the product of this industry is knowledge and positions and, and the, the consumers are various people making policies and making decisions and so on. Do you, have you done that? And he was surprised. I said, I, I don't think McKinsey would give advice on any industry without doing the industry analysis. And I said, I have done that. I have a database. So I told him at that point, today the numbers are different, but I told him at that point, it's approximately 2,000 people. If you take a if you take a list make a list of all the scholars who are not just casual hobby kind of writing once in a while, but who are considered to be specialists on South Asia in various different disciplines, and you remove the duplicates, at that point in time, there's 2,000 full-time people doing this. So I said, this is an industry. It is not like you uh, you could just raise some millions of dollars and give it to Harvard. You have to understand what has been their output, what has been the output of each university. What has been the output of each journal, each conference, each individual? You must understand the players and you must have your own position. What is the position you want to promote? So before you tell Ambani to put this money or Tata's to put this money, you must first explain this is our position and therefore the goal of this mission, is uh, this funding is to be promoting that position. Are you able to articulate what is the India position? So he was very surprised and I am just mentioning this name. I really like him. He's a wonderful person. The same kind of, I'm mentioning this because he's a prominent person in consulting. Uh, to give you the, uh, make the point that not only our religious leaders didn't know these issues and the political leaders didn't know these issues, so-called intellectuals on our side never really thought of it as a serious matter. And even today, the people who are trying to follow in my footsteps and do this funding of this academic and that academic, similar arguments I've used, they've taken these and tried to raise money, is more to raise money. But if you sit down with them and say, have you done your due diligence? Have you done your industry analysis? Have you read this particular guy whom you've appointed uh, University of Southern California Vivekanand Studies Chair? Have you looked at his writings on Vivekanand? And they haven't. So this is, this is an unfortunate situation. So I turned from the pioneering sponsor of academic scholarship on Hinduism to being the prominent opponent. It's, it's true because I st because my style of funding them was highly hands-on and being hands-on and being independently thinker and being creative thinker, hard worker, I would go read through the hundreds of pages of dissertation, I read lots of them and very heavy academic books and, uh, and, and it shows in the scholarship I do because I have my sources, I, I like to read a lot. So being that way and being very vocal in expressing and articulating my critiques of what they've written, uh, they found it uh, that either they have to completely transform their ideological position, which is not easy for them to do, or they have to fight me, which is not easy for them to do, or they should just ignore me. So this is, this is how I switched to being my own scholar. So I figured that after giving about 400 grants to all kind of scholars, Indians, I got scholars from India, a lot of mediocre people. I got some scholars who, were, who would just give political, bombastic, uh, you know, messages, but no rigor, no background, no backup to substantiate it. So you, it's an embarrassment to bring such people. I, I would bring people whose knowledge is obsolete. They're talking about things that were there 20 years ago, but people have moved on. And they were criticizing the old kind of way of thinking, which is not relevant anymore. So I found that 
uh, and then there was a demand people saying you should go and talk you should write so i started by writing blogs very successful giving lectures in the us in those days i i did not put them on youtube so i have lo lost a lot of the archive of my earlier talks uh, but then i would say 7 8 years ago i would say 10 years ago i started becoming my own scholar saying i will personally start producing the output and let's see what that happens so i became infinity foundation's most productive scholar without a salary okay so itne logon ko paisa diya khub yahan ha it's like you know after hiring all kind of people to do the work then you just one day roll up your sleeve and says you know something i'm just going to do this so that's what i started doing so i'm just giving you background how it is